You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. As we talk about uh, positive psychology and uh, that happiness movement that Daniel was talking about, it really is... Uh, to me, I I love it as a as a process, as an approach to life. It makes sense how we get there. We do need to pay attention and make sure that uh, we're not just telling people that they they just got to hunker down and suck it up and and be happy. Um, because again, there are certain cultures and certain parts of our country, certain parts of our um, of our world that they still don't have the same opportunities, right, as others. And so um, to be positive when your sister was just abducted into a sex trade, uh, you know, underground, you know, problem, it's not enough to just say, just be happy. But that's not usually what the happiness uh, kind of movement is about. It's more about the fact that you can wait forever to be successful and it won't make you happy. A lot of us think success breeds happiness. Grades makes you ha- make you happier. Uh, being a successful business operator makes you happy. And so we think perfection and getting a lot of things accomplished and done makes us happy. And we've trained that into our children. We've trained it into our brains, our minds that accomplishment is happiness uh, and um, uh, you know, control is happiness. And in reality, what you'll find out in all of the research on happiness is it's, it's not quite that way. Usually what the key is, is happy people that find the method to find happiness in their existing life, those people tend to be successful. It's not that success breeds the happy, it's that happy people breed success. And that's some of the latest research on the subject. Um, so a couple of rules. I call them the ABCs of happiness. And they're very basic ideas. But the A of happiness is to appreciate today. We need to appreciate what is happening with us right now. Appreciate your life right now. Happier, happier people appreciate what's going on in their life. They actually appreciate what they're good at. And they're very they're very tuned in to what they do well. They appreciate their strengths. They understand what their expertise is and what they know how to do. And they know their character strengths. They know their values and their beliefs. They also appreciate others, and they see what others are doing. Happy people um, appreciate the fact that others are part of their life, part of their team, and they can see the good in what's happening. And happier people appreciate the positive, not just that everything is positive, but they see the good that is happening daily. And um, the ability to see the good every day tends to change you, right? We can leverage good things. If, if we have more of a negative mindset, then all we tend to do is pick up all the negative. And um, a, a lot of pessimists would say, well, yeah, well, that's the best way to be, right? Then you're not going to be taken advantage of. Yeah, but not being taken advantage of does not make you happy. It also does not make you a great business person to play every interaction as, as a way that, to make sure you're not going to get harmed. 
at some point you have to actually go reaching for the other things, the other benefits. So uh, the A's are to appreciate what is. Um, the B's of life uh, are really about believing in tomorrow. Happier people have a strong belief about what their future looks like. And they, they want to be a part of their future and they want – and they know what their future should look like. They have a strong belief, a strong hope in what they can accomplish and do um, tomorrow. And uh, that means they have a strong connection to their purpose in life. They, they have a mission. They understand what life is. They're trying to, to actually um, – to, to be able to be in their lives in, in a more active way and to fulfill their mission and their purpose and their passion and they're connected to it. And really that to me is one of the, the greatest, I think, benefits of this whole uh, happiness movement is to know that you have a life that's pretty powerful and if you can believe in it, uh, in tomorrow being a good thing, it's awesome. In fact, they actually define happiness as an experience of positive emotion. It's pet pleasure combined with a deeper feeling of meaning and purpose. So ask yourself, do you have more meaning in your life? Do you have more purpose in your life? Because if so, you're probably going to be happier. And the C's of happiness are simply to connect deeply with others. Happy people connect more deeply with other people, which a couple things that means is they are intentionally not just zoning out. They don't just numb themselves with media, with technology, with Netflix. So they turn off their numbing. And uh, they don't just try to medicate themselves away. They don't drink themselves into oblivion. They don't. Uh, they don't. They don't just phase out every night and turn off every night. And they also connect deeply with other people, which is hard for many because they they don't want to be vulnerable. And so we, these are the things we've got to work on: appreciating what is, believing in what will be, and connecting along the way. ABCs of happiness. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Whether we're talking about global warming, whether we're talking about you know international politics or famine or whatever is going on in the world, as we just learned, the more information that we can gather and garner, the better, right? But instead, uh, a lot of us feel very comfortable with minimal information and then maximal uh, uh, beliefs and um and argumentation and all of these other things that go along with what complicate our lives, what complicate our relationships. Isn't it crazy that many times when we have, when we are the least informed, we feel the very most confident? I uh, talked the other day about Fortnite, a video game. All the kids are out there playing, and um, a lot of parents don't like it. They just don't like it. And if you ask them why, then it's usually, well, my kids like it, and they're spending too much time on it. And then I just ask, have you ever played it with them? Have you ever gone to see what they're doing? When the, well, I mean, I've walked by, yeah, and it's just shooting people. They're just shooting people. Have you ever watched a game fully all the way through? Have you ever seen what is going on? No, no. So we have all of this fear, but we're not informed. And uh, it, this this also becomes a big part of our relationships, right? Because... The reality is none of us in our in our interactions with others, none of us have all of the data. But boy, we sure act as if we do, don't we? We we need to in our conversations assume we don't know. And even if you know, don't assume you understand everything about why that person would drive that way, why that person would say such a rude thing, why that person would would 
be completely frustrated and and angry about something. I um, we had a, a friend when we were raising our family and younger that wouldn't would not absolutely would not let their child sleep over anywhere. Just wouldn't. Just stuff can happen. They just horrible. Wouldn't let it happen. No. I mean, and to a point where it was it was hard for the for the girl because this young girl was all of her friends were sleeping over. They all got to do it. So she'd get to go stay there until, you know, late and then she'd have to go home with her parents. And it makes sense, right? And uh, a lot of other parents were frustrated, like just like what? You don't trust us? You don't think we're you think we're going to do something to your daughter? Is that what this is about? It's not. But come to find out the girl had been the mother had been abused as a child at a sleepover. And it's still part of her mindset. It hurts. It it hurts bad. And the minute you understand that that's what the mother went through, you understand why she protects her daughter that way. It makes it understandable. These things don't always make things right or wrong, whatever that is, but it does make it understandable. So if you want more power with people, try to understand them more. Assume that you don't have the full story. Assume that there's more going on upstream that is maybe coming into this uh, the pool of water that you're dealing with, the pool or the situation that you have to engage in. Don't assume you know. Don't assume you're informed. In fact, the more confusing the situation is, the more likely it is that you don't know what's going on. So watch it. Pay attention to it. Slow down the conversation. Uh, just like we were just learning uh, from Anna Rosling Ronenland, slow down the the interpretation. We don't need to jump to conclusions. We don't need to um, we don't need to make something a bigger problem than it is. So just remember, none of us have all the data. And if you don't have the data, don't just quickly make it up. Go try to figure it out. Go try to gather more data and then see if it doesn't improve your condition. Anyway, just a little idea. We all need more understanding regardless, right? Not easy, this life, but uh, totally worth it and even worth it with people that drive us crazy. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Could you ever be accused of being a clingy partner? Are you just too unwilling to let go of your loved one, your your significant other, your uh, you know your companion for life? You just too clingy. There really is uh, there, there's there is a an issue where some of us in our relationships, when we have kind of an unsafe attachment, we might end up being what's called too anxiously attached, right? Where we are constantly wondering where our partner is. Why are you here? Why aren't you here? Why aren't you, uh, you know, why haven't you called me? And and we become a little too needy, a little too stuck uh, on on each other. Now, right, it's good to it's good to like each other, right? It's good to want to be with each other. But clinginess is a whole different ballgame. In fact, here are some questions for you. Uh, I put together a little uh, quiz called the clinginess quiz. Here you go. Has your partner, this is how you can identify if you might be a little bit too clingy. Has your partner expressed concerns that you're clingy or needy? Have they ever told you you just you're just a little too needy? Do you get depressed 
or anxious when your partner isn't around during the day? Like, do you do you miss them so much that, you know, you get a little depressed? Do you place unrealistic expectations or demands on your partner because of your concerns? Do you put like a demand? And I've had clients that have demanded that their partner text them three times a day. Do you feel like you are less valuable and or less important because your partner is more independent than you are? You know, because the mere fact they want to go out and, you know, do something, you know, go golfing, does that terrify you? Well, what am I going to do all day? That takes three hours. Uh, are your thoughts or and fears keeping you from focusing on other things? Can you not move on and go do your other work that you need to do because you're too worried about what your partner might be doing? Do you have a childhood history of abandonment or trust issues? Do you, have you ever felt like your your parents maybe weren't there for you and you know, you've known for a long time that you've you just have a fear of people not being there for you. And do you suffer a strong, consistent sense of fear of losing people who are close to you? Do you worry that people might die, that people might not come back? Because if you do, you may have other issues going on, like an attachment disorder or abandonment issues. And that's where, you know what, if it's just fine, we'll work on it, right? But uh, one of the keys would be to get to the root and to go get some help. It's a perfect time to go get a counselor and let the counselor help you figure out what's going on, why are you so clingy, and what what really is the deeper fear. Because you might think that holding on to the one you love is the key, but the tighter you grip, the more likely you are to lose the one that you love. And so we want uh, to be close to our partner. We want to show that we care. In fact, we in the Bible, we even talk about you've got to cleave under your partner, right, your spouse, and unto none other. And um, I I looked up the word uh, cling and the word cleave. Listen to this. Cling means to hold fast to or adhere closely to something as by gripping or sticking in contact with it. Uh, To cleave is to adhere closely or stick and cling to remain faithful to it. And also um, the word cleave is also a verb, which means to part or split, like a meat cleaver. Uh, is something that splits um, between division lines, natural like division lines, right? So um, to be uh, to cleave unto someone means you actually do stick, you remain faithful to that person. It also means that um, at some point you don't, you, you've got to be independent enough to have your own life. You've got to be somebody that is um, strong enough to to be able to go your on your own. And then when we come back together, life seems to be better. Anyway, just my little idea, my little coach's corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. While wages are up and the slow growth of the economy looks promising, many are still falling behind. Our guest today, Rana Faruhar, uh, author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, joins us to tell us more about our nation's trends towards financialization and the damage that it has caused. Uh, Rana, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much for having me. Honored to have you. I think, oh, this topic is so needed. Where have you been, (laughs) Rana? Oh, I've been here. I've been Seriously. Here. <laughs> Don't you think, I? this is what I've been talking about. I think this is why so many kind of just middle Americans are, are so frustrated because yeah. everyone's getting rich except 
80% of America. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, the reason I got interested in writing this book was I, I'm a business and financial journalist. And yeah. after the financial crisis, I watched as the markets were, you know, climbing to record highs and the rich seemed to be doing very well. You know, I live in New York City. I see a lot of very wealthy people around me all the time. But, you know, I grew up in rural Indiana. I spend a lot of time in middle America and I could just see that Main Street across the country was not feeling this recovery. And I wanted to understand why. And my research led me to this idea that basically the financial system itself has begun to choke off our growth and our prosperity. And that's it's, it's a very weird idea because actually, if you look back to the history of capitalism, the financial markets were set up to serve Main Street. Right. They're supposed to, they're supposed to take all of our savings in the form of bank deposits and lend it out to businesses, which then create jobs and growth and prosperity. But that's not happening. So the killer stat in my book, if you will, is that only about 15 percent of all the money uh, sloshing around America's financial financial institutions is actually being invested in Main Street business. What? And that's a big problem. Yeah, because they, then they don't have access to cash. They, and a lot of them don't have cash flow, but they go get the cash, but then they have to pay it back at such a big uh, cost that, that they themselves as business people aren't making anything. Right. I mean, it's it's a crazy thing because our financial system has become the tail that wags the dog. You know, the financial services are, are just that. They're services. They're set up to serve other businesses. Right. That was the idea. Um, and, and really, that's how the system worked up until about the 1980s, at which point the model began changing pretty radically. And it's interesting because since the 1980s, our growth, our trend growth as a nation has actually slowed. You know, I mean, we, we are growing much more slowly than we were, say, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And my book says that this is a big part of that. Hmm. You, one of the things that's weird about your point um, is you need money, right, to make money. Yeah. But it seems like right. now what's happening is the whole goal is just to make the money lenders money. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because if you look at, again, what's happened since the 1980s, so the financial services industry has nearly uh, tripled in size over that period. And they've begun to take the majority of corporate profits. So if you look at the financial services industry, it creates only 4% of all American jobs. Mm-hmm. It takes 25% of all American corporate profits. Wow. That is a lot of economic oxygen that is being taken out of the room by one industry and is choking off the growth of other industries. Because – and that's – if I'm a business person, I need that – more of that 25 percent to put back into research and development, to put back more into innovation, to hire more people. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, one of the other perverse effects of the rise of finance is that the markets have begun to control what business people do. So if you look at the pressure that the average CEO of a public company in America is under, you know, you 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 go out, um, you're trying to sell your story to Wall Street. If they don't like your story, if you're not jacking up profits and and your share price quarter after quarter, mm. you're out of there. You're going to get fired. I mean, the average tenure of a CEO in America today is three years. Um, and that's just not enough time for them to take the kinds of decisions, the long-term decisions they need um, to make the investments to really grow business for the future. Um, and another interesting thing is that, again, since finance began really taking off the 1980s, 
um, the behavior of all corporations in America has have changed. So businesses in all industries have now started to act like banks. They get more money from just moving money around, right. from hedging, from tax optimization, from trading than they did 40 years ago. So there's this sense that we should all act like bankers, and I think it's really undermining our economy. Yeah, we're just becoming a bunch of banks. Um, yeah. Which is funny, too, because uh, the too-big-to-fail bank idea, which was, you know, the, the co- the, the lack of control and oversight on the financial markets cost us so much, and yet mm-hmm. but there, there's something – there's an underlying issue. What I hear you're saying, though, is everything they're doing is legal and, and I guess more or less ethical – well, maybe not ethical, but legal, but, but it's not necessarily good for the country or the businesses. Right. I'm laughing because it's funny. Yeah, much of it is legal. You can argue ethical. Exactly. <laughs> but but – uh... But, but what's interesting is that, you know, many of the practices that have become very commonplace didn't used to be legal. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is something called share buybacks. Now, this is when a company goes out into the public market and buys back their own stock. And this used to be illegal up until 1982. It was considered market manipulation. Well, this is now normal business. It's a practice that companies use to artificially jack up the share price of their stock when there's nothing really happening uh, in the underlying growth story. We have had two years, uh, 2015, 2016 have seen, and actually 2014 as well, have seen record numbers of share buybacks. So basically, companies are not creating real growth at Main Street level. They're creating artificial financialized growth. And what this does is it creates the kind of market bubble that we had back in 1999, back in 2007 in the run-up to the subprime crisis and the Great Recession. This is a really unhealthy thing for America because, of course, when those bubbles burst, we all suffer. You know, um, people, people, their portfolios go down, the value of their homes goes down, and it's a real issue. And by the way, as finance has gotten bigger, the number of financial crises um, has, has greatly increased. So we're dealing with this on a much, much more frequent basis than we used to in the past. Are a lot of the high uh, tech, uh, uh, the... I don't know. I don't want to name names, but are a lot of the high tech companies doing this because the ones that everyone talks about are so overinflated in value? Well, yeah. In fact, the lead chapter of my book talks a little bit about Apple, yeah. which um, it's interesting because so Apple is, you know, the one of the most loved, most prosperous, most successful companies in history. But it's interesting because you could argue, and I, I do argue, that they haven't really invented any groundbreaking new technology since Steve Jobs, the founder, passed away in 2011. Now, um, the current CEO, Tim Cook, pays a lot of attention to the balance sheet and to sort of financial manipulations. And so over the last few years, this company has handed back tens of billions of dollars to um, the biggest investors in the form of these share buybacks. And what's amazing is they have borrowed money to do it. Now, Apple has about $200 billion worth of cash. (laughs) Sitting in bank accounts, many of them, by the way, overseas yeah. in, ta- in tax havens because they don't want to bring that money back and pay the fairly high U.S. corporate tax rate on it. So instead, they're borrowing money here at home, going into debt to pay back people like Carl Icahn. This is not money that's going into building new factories or enhancing R&D. This is going to make the top 10 percent of the population in America that owns 80 percent of the top stock Richer. And to me, that's just a bizarre system. You've got 
tons of cash, you borrow cash, you hand it back to the wealthiest people in the country without creating any real underlying growth. And to me, the math just doesn't add up. Eventually, um, you know, that that stymies your economic growth. You mean Donald Trump's Carl Icahn? (laughs) Wow. Oh, my heavens. How weird. No, but I guess that's the point you're making is how how backwards this is for business. And yeah. and so if business is more worried about the Carl icons and and just, you know, the ma- making the stock price l- stay up and look good mm-hmm. even if it's, you know, in you know, overinflated um versus jobs, no wonder yeah. our jobs market really is pretty dismal. I mean every, I mean I guess the numbers are supposedly okay, but it seems like there's a lot of people that are angry. Well, that's for sure. I mean, and last Friday's jobs numbers were actually a bit of a disappointment. Right. What's, what's interesting is that the whole nature of employment in the country has changed. I mean, you know this. We all feel this in our, in our home communities. Um, a lot of very high-quality jobs have gone elsewhere, uh, which is part of this process of financialization because uh, the markets want to send things wherever it's cheapest. Um, but that's not necessarily best for local economies. And I'm arguing that actually there are other models. You know, there are other countries that do this differently. In Germany, for example, you have a system where uh, business is still more in charge than the financial markets. And so you have businesses that will pay relatively high labor rates and keep jobs at home and really keep quality incredibly high, which then allows them to charge higher prices for goods. And that economy works, and it actually enriches local populations. And I'm arguing, particularly in my solutions chapter, that we need to get back to to that sort of a model. Oh, yeah. Man, you've got a lot of good arguments. We've got to take a break, Rana. We're speaking with Rana Faruhar, who is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She is um, she speaks regularly on CNN as a global economic analyst. She also is um, the uh, assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. We're honored to have her. We're going to take a break, come back, continue this discussion about the rise of finance and the fall of American business. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you you hear all of the frustration, you know, people fighting at a presidential event. And uh, Bernie Sanders screaming over and over about Wall Street, Wall Street, Wall Street. Well, uh, who better to, to teach us all what's going on on Wall Street and uh, business then uh, Rana Faruhar. Rana is the author of the book Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. She is the assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. She, um, she's, she's the real deal, for heaven's sake. She also appears regularly on <laughs> CNN. And she at least, for once, has a clue. I don't have a clue. So I need you here to help us, Rana. <laughs> I don't know. I think you sound like you've got a clue. I mean, I, you know... What's interesting is I think a lot of people, you know, living in the real world on Main Street uh, throughout America do have a clue. I mean, they recognize that something is profoundly wrong with the way our economy is working. And 
we've been sold a line in the last 40 years that the markets know best and that the markets are up, you know, everything's fine, we should all be happy. And that's just not the case. And, um, you know, you mentioned folks fighting at a Trump rally, Bernie Sanders. And I actually think that my my book goes a long way towards explaining both the Trump and the Sanders phenomenon, which to me are in some ways different sides of the same coin. It's about people being really disenchanted with establishment politics. Well, why are they disenchanted? Because they see uh, decisions having been taken across both Republican and Democratic administrations over the last several decades that haven't helped Main Street but have helped Wall Street. Exactly. And we need to bridge that gap. I mean, we, the next president, whoever it is, has got to address this issue. Is Because the role of government is enormous. Um, you know, government was asleep at the watch and mm-hmm. and, and, and that, you know, caused a, a, a catastrophe economically. But it also seems like we're just setting ourselves up for it again. What, what, what is well, the role of government in this? Well, this is an, so this is a really interesting point. So, uh, you know, a lot of people have blamed bankers about the financial crisis and a lot of the bad behaviors that we've seen in the last few years, and certainly some of them deserve blame. But at the end of the day, Washington is the arbiter of what happens on Wall Street, right? I mean, politicians can regulate the markets. They can, right. they can also, you know, not just use regulation, but they can craft – um, checks and balances and incentives through the tax code that that encourage institutions and people to do the right things rather than the wrong things. But one of the big problems, and I also look at this in my book, is that the financial power of Wall Street has become such that uh, if you look at this election cycle, um, the top out of the top ten individual political donors, six of them are hedge funders. Wow. So you've got one industry. I mean, every year, big, big finance basically jockeys with big pharma for who's going to be the single biggest industry donor to Washington. So you have a tremendous amount of financial capture of, of what I call cognitive capture, where Wall Street has the it has the, the ear of politicians. You know, I mean, if you just look at how the Dodd-Frank financial regulation was crafted in the wake of 2008 in the financial crisis, over 90 percent of all the meetings about that regulation were taken with Wall Street bankers themselves. Wow. So, you know, if you wonder why things turned out the way they did, it's because Wall Street was the biggest voice in the room. And we really need to address that problem. One of the things I want to do with my book is – is say we need a much bigger group of stakeholders uh, in the arena talking about this. And, and it's funny, I'll just say one more thing, which is that the moment that I knew I needed to write this book was during an off-the-record conversation that I had with um, a former Obama administration official who was talking, uh, had had a role in the, the bailouts and in um, the, the, the sort of rebound from the financial crisis. And we were talking about uh, how regulation should be crafted. And I pointed out that one of the most contentious parts of regulation, something called the Volcker Rule, which was designed to separate risky trading from plain vanilla lending. It was a very important piece of regulation. But 93% of the meetings about that had been taken with Wall Street bankers. Oh, wow. And the, and the official looked at me, and he looked at me with a, with a truly – confused look on his face and said, well, who else should we have been speaking to? And I just, wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. Unbelievable. I I need to, I need to write a book about this because if you don't know who you should be speaking to, we've we've got a problem here. Oh, see, that's, 
that's that's again the problem is too then we have i guess new business students graduating from business school you know going to new york working with these firms and this just keeps getting perpetuated and growing and growing why wouldn't you want to go make money well that's it and i actually have a chapter in my book on business education as well and it's interesting because a lot of the CEOs that I speak to these days say we can't find the right talent that we need from business schools. And I say, well, why is that? And they say, well, because business schools are basically teaching finance. They're not teaching business. They're teaching students how to move money around on a balance sheet. They're not teaching them how to really innovate and mm. learn particular industries and, and think creatively. And, you know, it's a very old-fashioned way of thinking about how to run a business. It used to be that everybody was told, you know, marshal your capital, cut costs, guard your money at all costs. Right. The, the, the world the world is awash in money right now. You know, I mean, there there's actually the Federal Reserve Bank of America has put $4 trillion into the economy since 2008. There's money sloshing around everywhere. But what's harder to find is real skill, real human talent, um, people that can think creatively. And so – Businesses need a totally different kind of leadership of executives, and business schools are still teaching finance finance 101, and they're not churning out the talent that we need to really create the next generation of business growth in this country. Yeah, BYU has the Marriott School here, and mm. it's a great top-notch uh, program, especially MBA program. But the funny mm-hmm. thing is finance is the hardest one to get into because everyone well, everyone wants to be a part of it. Well, right. And, you know, you can't blame these kids because so many of them will come out. Uh, I don't know what the cost of BYU is, but many around the country, many will come out with, with such um, debt and so many student loans that they, mm. you know, they have to go where the money is. Yeah, got to pay it off. is in finance. And that's, and that's what's really interesting. I think that, you know, getting back to that finance creates 4% of jobs but takes 25% of profits. We need to put that profit share a little more evenly around the, the, the rest of the different areas of business in this country. And, and so you really see it's it's not just a government issue or just a big business or a Wall Street issue. Also, Main Street business, uh, we're, we're not necessarily just exercising good old-fashioned business skills. It's all money movement. Well, a lot of industries, and you know, I think that the bigger companies do more of this. I think small and mid-sized companies do still tend to be a little more grassroots, a little more focused on their knitting. Um, but if you look from the 80s until now, um, across all industries in America, businesses are getting about five times as much revenue as they did in 1980 from just moving money around. Wow. So this puts us, and the other thing I, I think is very important, this puts us at a real disadvantage on the international landscape because a lot of the new companies coming up from the emerging markets, from China, from India, they're run by, um, by families or they're run by the state, and they can take a much longer-term view. They can think out over 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, whereas American businesses are under so much pressure to just think for the quarter. Now, the one exception, and this is a very interesting exception, it's almost the exception that proves the rule, is family businesses in America. If you look at private businesses, and in particular family-owned businesses, they invest about twice as much on Main Street as public competitors do. And what that tells me is they're able to do that. They see opportunities in their communities, and they are able to make those investments because they don't have Wall Street pressure on them. And I think that's a really interesting contrast. Hmm. Like crowd, like what about crowdfunding? What about some of these companies that are coming up through 
I mean, you can crowdfund. I guess it's called crowdfunding your funeral now or your wedding. And I mean, it's it's still everyone's still looking for money, but I guess money with different ties, money money with yeah. different commitments. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, crowdsourcing falls under this area uh, of finance called fintech. It's the combination of finance and technology. And I think this is a really interesting area to watch. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation here. Um, you're seeing companies that are really coming in and, and saying, yes, small and mid-sized businesses and individuals need capital. Let's find some innovative new ways to provide it. And, you know, there's going to be there's going to be some that will succeed. There's going to be some that will fail and be problematic. But I think it's great that there's a whole new area that is challenging the established um, business model in banking. Right. We definitely need something different. But I guess what will still happen is, you know, if you have business savvy and sense, you grow your business, you get it big enough, then you do an IPO and then Wall Street comes in. And then they just well, right. take over. That's right. And there's this wonderful Stanford study that I quote in my book that if you look at um, big tech companies before they go public and after they go public, innovation in those companies after they go public falls off by about 40 percent uh. because they they can't make those investments in R&D anymore. They have to start paying back the shareholders, like I was saying before. Yes, the death of the company. Um, <laughs> that sounds really sure. bad, Rana. Uh, it does. I've got some. I have a solutions chapter, though. Okay, what? Well, give us some solutions. What and and what can we do? Yeah. Well, so uh, one solution. I'll I'll say first um, one practical solution. There's so much we could do with the tax code. I mean, we have a tax code in this country that subsidizes debt and encourages debt over equity and savings and investment. And that's at both the consumer level and at the corporate level. So it's the reason why people are able to buy more house than they really need and write it off their taxes. It's mm. the reason that companies are able to take on lots of debt that then blows up and tanks the company and people lose their jobs. So we could do a lot to change the tax code and say, let's reward savers and investors instead of debtors. So that's point number one. Um, point number two, though, is that all of us with our retirement portfolios um, could think more smartly. I have a whole chapter on how the asset management part of the financial industry takes so much in fees. Um, these actively managed mutual funds, they almost never beat the market. Everybody should just put their money in a no-fee index fund and forget about it until it's time to retire. Yeah, um, yeah. Because you just don't need to be paying those fees um, uh, there's been some really great academic research that shows as much as 60% of your nest egg can be eaten up by those fees if you're not careful. So put in put in an index fund, forget about it. Walk away. Walk away. Don't <laughs> check your portfolio every every day. Yeah. <laughs> what what should we do, uh, Rana, as an average just voter and somebody yeah. that because it does feel like we're very we're we're uninformed or misinformed. Well, uh, yes, and I think that. It's almost like we need to have a narrative shift. We need to change the story around and say finance is not the kind of tippy top of the economic pyramid that we should all be aspiring to. Financial services need to be serving real business, and we need to start to understand that. And frankly, we need to vote in politicians that that say that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, one of the things I've been a little disappointed by in this election cycle is I have not heard any of the candidates say really clearly the financial markets need to support Main Street. And here's how we're going to make that happen. And I think we need to really keep pushing um, as Americans for, for that message. Well, I bet you'll find that message deeply embedded in Hillary's emails somewhere and somewhere <laughs> sure. atop the wall of uh, Donald Trump. 
Or in the 1% percent of Bernie Sanders. Up there and keep looking, yeah. <laughs> well, Rana, you're, you're awesome. Keep up the great work. And everybody, uh, go check out this book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance, The Fall of American Business by Rana Faruhar. Thanks again, Rana. Thank you so much. You bet. Interesting. We got to get on it, folks. We got to get our companies back. I'm a businessman. It's hard. It's hard. And I get it. But if all you're doing is making money to pay your money lenders, that's not the business model you need. You got to figure out a way to really trickle it down. <laughs> trickle down. Ronald Reagan said it, right? Anyway, we'll take a break. Come back. Do a little coach's corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Helping you see the good in the world. You know, according to the National Philanthropic Trust, the average annual household contributes $2,974 to uh, family philanthropy, giving, donations. And overall, Americans give about $373 billion in in 2015, which is a 4.1% increase from 2014. So don't think people's giving is going down. They're giving more and more, and that probably goes up and down with the economy as well. But uh, I think our guest made some great points about the fact that where this giving comes from, it doesn't necessarily need to come from your uh the big corporations the big rich people and and a lot of times i feel like it's it is what happens we you know we know our organization raised all this money and so they paid to the united way and so that means we don't need to pay at the united way yeah the problem is you end up losing the opportunity the peace the lesson learned and you even end up losing the opportunity to have your family become a part of that. One of the things we do in my church is uh, we used to have janitors that would clean all of the chapels. And now what they found is why let's have the members clean the chapels. So they pass around a list every week and you sign up to take your family to go clean your church. And what a powerful opportunity to, uh, to take your family and wash the windows and the doors and the door handles and the restrooms in your church. And the minute you're doing that, amazingly, the conversations change. Now, when I, I just signed our kids up, and when I let them know we're doing it, they call, all kind of looked at me like, ah, can't someone else do it? Sure. Problem is, that's how we become generous, is by giving, not by having someone else give for us. So suggest highly that we all get our heads back in the generous mode. And again, I, I personally feel like I'm I, I'm strapped. I can't just keep giving financially, but I have time and I have talents and I have resources that are other than just financial resources that I can give. Let me donate time. My wife just donated time for our, our sports teams. We've donated time at school. We may donate. I donate speeches and go do free speeches all over the uh, the place just to help because I can give. That's what I can do. I can't just keep throwing cash at everything, but we got to get our head back in the game. Plus, another way I think to become grateful and and more generous is noticing what you've been given yourself. A fun activity you might want to try is sit your family down and 
just one night, let's try to come up with 100 things that as a family we are all grateful for. Blessings, gifts, wonderful things we've been given. It could be our own talents. It could be things people have given to us. How many times has somebody just showed up with cookies at our house just because? Or friends or neighbors. And make a list of 100 things that you are more grateful for. Nothing will make you happier than when you actually can can identify the good things that happen in your world. Um, another powerful tool is simply give your passion. Find something that you really love to do and share it with other people. Uh, I just had a friend talk to me about how they go as a family because everyone in the family except the dad loves to sing, loves to act, loves to entertain. So the father, uh, because it makes his family so happy, they go travel and spend their vacation time performing at, uh, you know, kind of different festivals. And I'm like, really? Are you getting better at performing? And he's like, not really. But it sure makes my daughters happy. And they'll go spend a month of their vacation time just doing what they're passionate about. A powerful gift you could give would be passion. Another powerful gift would be compassion. How many times now do we hear these stories about the uh, these refugees coming from Syria and from other countries, and yet we don't have compassion for them? Well, yeah, they're going to kill us. Well, again, as we talked about in the first hour, statistically, not really likely. You know, three in 10 billion will create a problem for you. But... We can still give. We can still care. We can still share. Uh, just giving, losing a part of yourself to uh, to give back to another. And one of the other rules, just simply of giving and being generous, is whenever we direct the hour, the arrows outside of us to enable and help other people, it stretches us and makes us bigger people. Anytime we're pushing the arrows back into ourselves, it shrinks us. It makes us smaller people. If we want to be a bigger people, a bigger population we got to push those arrows out towards others. So a little Coach's Corner for you. Just some hope, some insight. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. You know, when we talk about the fact that you you can hear um, the tonal qualities of the the trust trait, personality trait, um, isn't that amazing how advanced we are as human beings? We really are fine-tuned machines. And these machines that we all end up uh, playing and, and, and somehow we all are a part of the same culture where we can pick up those traits together – Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. And to think that uh, – remember, it was, it was a, another trait that we've designed. We've kind of grown in order to be more social animals, right? I mean we, we've grown and, and developed ourselves um, into this ability to read the tonal quality of somebody and know if we trust their modulation or not. And uh, also we can see if we trust their dominance or not and if we can trust their competency or not. So if that doesn't tell you that we are born to be connected social beings, I don't, I don't know what would. 
We are uniquely um, developed and and prepared to be with people. We have um, uh, we've learned from rhesus monkeys and other uh, research that's been done that we have certain abilities to pick up on um, on the ability to read people's uh, nonverbal uh, affect and, and emotional affect. We have the ability to actually have mirror neurons where. If I'm watching somebody in pain and my brain is uh, actually watching somebody that's that's sad, like, for example, the shootings in Florida or any of the shootings uh, that we and you're watching and you're feeling very empathetic and very caring toward another, we could go into your brain and we would notice that you are in the brain center or the part of your brain that would actually relate to the human emotion and the feelings and that you are actually mirroring the feelings of other people. We've learned that from studies with monkeys and other um, and other primates, and and even we all know that for some odd reason we're fine until someone else starts crying. And once someone starts crying that we really love and we care about, for some reason our emotion starts to kick in and we start to cry. What that tells you again is you're wired to connect. And we can try to pretend like we're not. We can try to outthink it. We can pretend like we don't care. But the reality is we care. And we've got to figure out a way, I believe, to start uh, not just hoping that we can somehow have a shortcut to trusting someone and creating trustworthiness, but maybe what we need to create really more than anything is more of an ability to actually grow trust with other people. So think about it in your life, in your relationships. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? There is a, there's a great book out, and he's been on the show many times, uh, two or three times actually, Stephen M. R. Covey, where we've talked about the speed of trust. And trust uh, to Stephen Covey and Stephen M. R. Covey was two things always. Character, which means you, you have the integrity and the character to do what you say you're going to do. You really just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. And we tend to trust people that have that. But you also have to have the competency. You have to know what on earth you're doing. It's not enough to trust somebody that's just really nice. They also have to bring competency. So think about that with the people around you in your life. Are you trustworthy to your kids? Do you know how to be their friend? Do you know how to connect to them? Some of us as parents, we just don't know how to do it. We don't know how to relate to our children. Some of us, it's, it's a character issue. We don't have the integrity, the character to do it. Some of us, we don't necessarily have the competency to do it. We don't know how to relate. The benefit of all of this, though, is that we can learn this. These are skills. These are tools that we can truly learn and we, we can grow. And I'm going to suggest that if we had a choice for th- something we should probably try to improve in our relationships, if you want more trust in your relationship, I would suggest you forge more character. Use your relationship to forge more character. And I'm going to give you a few steps, a few ways to do that in today's Coaching Corner. Number one way to exercise your character in your relationship is to be more wholehearted. Put your entire heart into your relationship again. Now, I get it. It's scary. What if I put it in there and then my wife just gets on Facebook and ignores me? That's scary, right? Then you'll just be rejected. So what a lot of us do is because we're, we don't dare put our whole heart into re, in our relationship because we're so afraid of rejection. So we then have a half-hearted relationship. And if we have a half-hearted relationship, predict the outcome. 
That's half the benefit, half the intimacy, half the closeness, half the communication, half the connection, half, half of the truth. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, we spend far, um, we spend enormous energy trying to dodge vulnerability when it would take far less effort to face it straight on. One of the things that may keep us half-hearted in our relationship is we're just too vulnerable. We don't want to be let down. And one of the rules I suggest, and I I just did this in a date night, um, that's basically talking about how to grow a a healthier relationship, higher love, I called it, um, is that we've got to learn to burn our ships. Like uh, Cortez, when he came to conquer, he... uh, when they pulled up, they, they, they left the ships and they, they didn't just leave them so they could hurry and run back and, and use them as an exit strategy. Cortez asked that they burn the ship or make them inoperable. So they really took the ships apart. They either took them apart so they couldn't float or they burnt them. And uh, that made it so there was no quick exit strategy from this place. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't just – hope to not be fully invested. They had to go win the war. And why that might be important in our relationships is if we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. One of them might simply be the fact that I can constantly blame my spouse for our problems, and I'm always looking for, for you know, um, all, they call it shopping alternatives is what we call it in our relationships. Another thing we can do to, to increase the character in our relationship is loosen your grip. Whenever I feel like I'm too vulnerable to risk anything new, I might try to control everyone around me. And as I try to control them, I might demand more perfection from people. I might try to get my safety and my security, not from my ability to respond to certain situations, but instead I try to get it by making everyone else around me play up a certain role. I want everyone around me to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to not surprise me to be highly predictable for me. And so I start controlling everyone. I might even demand perfection from everyone. Brene Brown has a great quote that says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. When I demand perfectionism from everyone around me, shame is going to go up because what I'm going to do is make everybody feel bad for not making me feel safer. The fastest way to handle uh, life is not to make everyone else around you be more predictable for your sake, but instead learn to loosen your own grip and handle your own insecurities and work on it. Another great way to work on it is to actually appreciate the gift you've been given. This is one of my favorite learnings I think I've had in the last, I don't know, two or three months is um, a concept given by C.S. Lewis that talks about we all have given gifts. We have things that we've been given that are beautiful gifts that are really awesome, Uh, for ourselves and our lives. And then we have what are called the expected gifts. The expected gifts are the things we've always expected to have happen to us. It might be that you've expected that you would get married and be married by now. But the given gift you've got instead isn't marriage. It just might be a really great friend network that that is very supportive and strong. Um, And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about an example of imagine that you are in a forest and you go looking for food. When the minute you're looking for food, you immediately have an expectation of what kind of food you you want to find, right? And so you come across some, um, let's say you're looking for berries, but you come across the mushroom and you don't want the mushroom because you were looking for berries. That's what you expected to get. 
But if you come across the mushroom, the mushroom is still a gift. It's still food and it would still be very valuable for you. But it's not what you expected and so you don't quite like it. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. We might keep walking through the forest and come across other leaves that might be edible or we might come across, you know, other vegetables that are there, roots or whatever. And it's not what we wanted. We were still looking for red berries. I need red berries. And if we go through life and we're constantly overlooking the gifts that are given to us, the jobs that you do have, the kids that you have, the trials that you have, then um, you might actually be able to actually enjoy the things that are given. So one of the pieces of advice is start to identify your great blessings that you've already been handed and start appreciating them and do what you can with the given gift. Uh, Start there, for example. Um, One of the great quotes by C.S. Lewis says, the truth is, of course, that what one regards as interruptions are precisely one's life. What a lot of us are frustrated by in this world because it's interrupting our life is what life is about, right? A sickness, an illness, a problem, a child that's disruptive, whatever it is, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. So there are some basic principles, I think, for all of us. Appreciate the gifts that you actually have been given. Loosen your grip a little bit more and be wholehearted about your relationships in your life. If you do those things, you're going to forge more character. And when we are working with one another and forging character, it's amazing what we become. We all become a little more trustworthy, which is the goal, I think, of of our lives as well. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You and your spouse, do you you share a lot of fun activities together? Do you have a lot of hobbies, toys, and leisure time where you two connect? Or do you end up tuning out each other and turning away from each other during those times? I wanted to... uh, continue a discussion about what are some things we can do to make sure that we actually share hobbies and, and have some some more fun activities together that bring us together. Uh, one of the things that I, I found, a lot of the clients I work with, they might, one of the partners may have a hobby that the other doesn't participate in. And it seems like that hobby ends up dividing them and that division makes it so they never seem like they can do anything. One might be, you know, a cyclist. And so they're always out cycling and doing their 100-mile cycle trips every weekend. So one of the rules I teach is that we need to energize what you can do together, not what you can't. Energy at times is scarce, so protect it, right? And uh, do some things that – and at least identify what you do like doing. Start spending a little more time in your life and your conversations talking about what you do like to do together, what does work. If you like going out to dinner, then make that an actual hobby. Become foodies. Get into the food – you know, get into it, but do it as something that we can do together instead of obsessing about the one thing your partner does that they do without you. If your partner goes hunting, you can obsess till you die about the fact that that's all he likes to do. I lose him all October as he goes hunting. But the reality is there also are another 11 months that you do a lot of other things. So start building uh, a really strong list of stuff that you do like to do together, um, things that are positive. Uh, Find out, uh, you know, you, you may not go hunting with him, but you might go up to the camp where they hunt. And you might go 
you know, have a fun time hanging out with a bunch of people up there. It might be that you don't like necessarily hunting, but you like being outdoors. And it might not be that you even like being outdoors, but you like the memories of family gathering and, and you know, getting your family ready to, to send out to go, to, to go do some of these activities. Another thing you could do is start stretching your marriage by trying new things together. There is some pretty interesting research about the fact that if I do something crazy and energetic, if I jump uh, off a, with a bungee cord off of a bridge and I do that with my spouse, that's going to create some pretty amazing new chemistry for me, but my body will actually attribute it to the people I'm with. And so it, that is a simple way to bond myself a little bit closer to others is by trying some new things. A lot of us are so rigid in our minds about what we will do and what we won't do that we don't try something new. We don't we don't engage in other activities. Try something. I remember trying to talk some friends into trying sushi, and now I can't get them to stop eating sushi. Every time we go out with them, all they want is sushi. But something as simple as that could be a, a really interesting new thing that you end up growing together. Remember, too, that you don't need to like something to do it. Uh, A lot of us are in this idea that, you know, life is short, so we need to do exactly what we like to do. But sometimes uh, I like doing things just because the people I'm with like doing it. I may not even participate, but I'll go along and um, I can I can thoroughly enjoy sitting there watching my granddaughter look at a llama for the 50th time. And I'm good with it. Let's just do that. So remember, sometimes it might even enhance your your ability to get close to somebody simply because we are doing something just simply for them. A lot of the hardest things in the world, like going to school, eating healthy food sometimes, exercising, practicing piano or whatever, taking your medicine, it's hard. But we do it because it's good for us. And also, by the way, once you start doing something consistently enough – Whether you like it or not, you usually become pretty good at it. Another thing is to find the joy in the being of the activity, not the doing. There is a lot of joy in being together, being supportive, being happy, being selfless, being unified. And a lot of those things are more valuable to us in the end than the doing of an activity. So remember that just being a human being is our goal, right? We want to be being um, involved, being active, being together instead of just human doings that are out there doing stuff day in and day out. So remember, basic stuff. Find the joy in the being, not the doing. Remember, you don't need to like it to do it. Uh, Try some new things together. Stretch your marriage a little bit by doing something different and energize what you can do together, not just what you can't. We will continue learning together, folks. That's why we do the show, to help all of us become and be the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. A recent article about the link between parents' weight comments and child a child's body dissatisfaction and weight gain sparked a major debate among the Huffington Post readers. Disagreement centered over the balance between concern for a child's health and the psychological and physical damage that can result from cruel or clueless comments about weight. One theme, however, kept popping up over and over again in the reader's comments. People who had been hurt in childhood by cruel weight comments 
and comments about their weight are now resolved to spare their children from the self-loathing and the disordered um, eating struggles that they had to deal with as kids. Here with us today is Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner, Mayo professor and head of the Division of Epidemiology and Community Health at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Steiner, thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. What, um, boy, this really, I, I think, opened up a super important discussion about our children and weight and also how we communicate with them. How Talk to us about, were you shocked? Were you surprised by the impact it had on the Huffington Post readers? You know, this is a huge topic, and I've been working in this field for about 30 years, so I'm not surprised. You knew, um, yeah. But but it's been an evolution, and, you know, in, in my work, because I come into contact with so many young people and their families, I know that there is a struggle because parents want to help their children be healthy, be at a weight that's healthy for them, and also help them to feel good about themselves and their bodies. Mm. So that's where our research has gone in trying to address what parents can do to promote a healthy body image, a healthy weight, and prevent any of the unhealthful consequences that we sometimes see. You um, you wrote a book about it as well. Uh, the book is, I'm Like So Fat, Helping Your Teen Make Healthy Choices and Eating and Exercise in Weight-Obsessed World. How? What are some of the things you've learned from the study about our children and their eating habits? So this book... Um, I wrote because there were so many books about, you know, dieting mm. and giving unhealthful, unhealthy advice, um, not based on fact. So I wrote this book based on our research, primarily our research study project, EAT, Eating and Activity Among Teens, and our teens have now become young adults because we've been following them for 15 years as they have their own families. Mm. And I was interested in finding if there are shared risk and protective factors for both excessive weight gain and disordered eating over time. So disordered eating behaviors are behaviors such as binge eating or unhealthy or extreme weight control behaviors. What did you find? Well, we found that being teased about your weight by your family or by friends, but particularly by your family, predicts both the onset of disordered eating behaviors and is a very strong predictor of weight gain over time. Similarly, we found that being dissatisfied with your body predicts weight gain over time. We know it predicts disordered eating and eating disorders, but the idea um, that that a parent or a teacher might want to motivate a child to, to lose weight through making them not feel so great about their body is not going to work. It's going to backfire. Mm. And finally, we have found that weight loss diets, going on a diet with the intention of losing weight, is a very strong predictor of weight gain, not weight loss over time. Wow. Those are some huge findings. They're huge findings, and they're consistent, you know, across analyses, across cohorts. And um, so the conclusion from this is that some well, excuse me, <coughs> oh, excuse me, some well-intentioned comments and behaviors 
are very likely to backfire. Man, so because you can, yeah, you can just tell that it's almost like parents don't know what to do. So then, you know, they use their humor and their charm and they tease or they they try to persuade them, you know, you'll feel better about your body. You won't have this. You won't have that. Uh, then they're displeased with their body or they push the diet, all three of which you've been able to validate that uh, are going to just increase disordered eating and other problems. Yep, absolutely. So in my book, I make four recommendations for parents, and I call them the four cornerstones for mm. promoting a healthy weight and a positive body image in your child. Let's go through some of those, find out okay. what we should be doing. Okay, sounds good. So the first one is to model healthy behaviors for your children. So really to be a role model for the types of behaviors we want to see in our children. And I should note that in addition to being a researcher, um, I am also a mother of four, so I put these 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 practices to work. Mm. Um, so what does that mean, healthy behaviors? And in my mind, that means staying away from dieting, engaging in physical activity that you enjoy doing, and model healthy but not perfect eating behaviors. So eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, eat a lot of whole grains, but also eat dessert. And when you eat dessert, eat a little bit and afterwards say that was really delicious hmm. as opposed to saying, you know, oh, I feel so guilty. I shouldn't <laughs> have eaten that. I feel so stuffed. You yeah. Know, good, good, um, good things to remember before Thanksgiving. <laughs> Absolutely. And also you, you were saying but exercise, doing something you like. How many times have we seen or heard somebody exercise and you know they hate it, they hate everything about it, and they become almost the martyr of this whole process? You're saying model that these are normal, healthy behaviors and that they're good. You like it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a difference, you know, between getting on a, getting on a machine and seeing how many calories you can burn up or finding something that you really like to do and can do on an ongoing basis that has numerous benefits for your health. So I, for example, I love doing yoga. So I do a lot of yoga. It doesn't have to do with weight. It has to do with, with how I feel how my body feels afterwards. Other people might like to go for a walk or go for a run, whatever it is, go dancing, something that, that you enjoy doing. I love that. And um, I, I guess that's part of the key is you're not dieting. You're just eating healthier yeah. and you're modeling. The goal is modeling the behavior. Exactly. Excellent. Give us another one. What's one more okay. before we take a break? So the second one is provide an environment that makes it easy for your children to make healthy choices. So um, I like to say, do more, talk less. Do more to make it easy for your child to engage in healthy eating and physical activity and talk less about it. One of the things that our research in Project Eat has really explored is family meals. And we, we kind of stumbled into this area of research, and it emerged as such a strong protective factor for eating behaviors, for disordered eating, and for a range of of um, psychosocial variables. Um, so we've looked at that. We've, we've found the importance of eating together as frequently as possible as a family and making the family meal an enjoyable place. So it's not the place to bring up difficult topics. You know, don't talk about the elections. Don't, if it's going to lead to, you know, a fight, talk about it if it's not. <laughs> don't make comments about a child eating too much food. You know, Try to stay away from um, nagging children about chores or 
or homework. Really, you know, it doesn't mean these topics can never come up, but trying to, to make the family meal a place where people want to be, where they come together, where they share the events of their day, where they share things that are going on in their lives. Where it's, yeah, but positive. Yep, yep. And it's interesting, positive, a positive experience around food um, without talking about food. It's just, it's powerful. Um, We're learning as much as we can right now from Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner. She is walking us through Project EAT and some of the research that has come come out of the uh, Project EAT uh, program and research. She is teaching us about eating, activity, and teens, and blowing up some myths about what you should do, what you shouldn't be saying and doing um, when it comes to your child's weight loss. Stick with us, folks. They're just kids. And sometimes we might mean well, but uh, we might be doing it a little backwards. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, healthier lives. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner, who is a Mayo professor and head of the Division of Epidemiology and Community Health in the School of Public Health. She's an adjunct professor in the Department of Pediatrics as well, both at the University of Minnesota. And her research focuses on adolescent nutrition and the prevention of weight-related problems, including eating disorders, unhealthy weight control behaviors, body dissatisfaction, and obesity. Today, she's also focusing on the fact that as parents, a lot of, um, I mean, how we parent, how we choose to address these issues may very well be part of the problem uh, with our children as well. We appreciate you, Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Talk more. Um, You were going through the cornerstones. Cornerstone one, model healthy behavior. So instead of you know, instead of spending a lot of time talking, we ought to be modeling what healthy uh, eating is like and healthy lifestyle is like, enjoying our food, um, even enjoying dessert, not not pushing everything as a diet. Uh, also, you say provide an environment, um, which is where we eat together, make it a positive experience. What are some of the other cornerstones? What else do we need to be worried about? So in my book, um, the third one that I write about is focus less on weight. Instead, focus on behaviors and overall health. So if you have a child who is interested in losing weight or going on a diet, talking about going on a diet, I really encourage you to steer the conversation away from weight or avoid bringing it up yourself and instead placing it on overall health, overall behaviors. Well, all of us want to be engaging in healthy eating. All of us want to be physically active. You know, one of the, the, the comments that I often hear is, well, I have one skinny child and one fat child. Oh. So what, what do I do? And, you know, granted, there are some differences in children's appetites. And, you know, parents do sometimes do need to modify their behaviors for different children. But in general, I say you do the same thing. The same foods are healthy for both children. And, you know, take that as as your default plan. Is this different with young women versus young men? What, how we would go about um, 
talking about this? I mean, because it, 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 or is this, are these just great principles overall? These are great principles of, overall. We do find that that girls are much more likely to be dissatisfied with their bodies and um, and engage in, in dieting and unhealthy weight control behaviors than boys. However, boys are certainly also engaging in these behaviors. And what we are also seeing, again, both in girls and boys, but more in boys, is the use of muscle-enhancing mm. behaviors. Right, right. So, so it's a concern for both. The That's only great. thing um, that that I was going to say under this point is to really establish a no tolerance policy for weight teasing at home, and that goes for girls and boys. What we have seen in our research is that um, children of all shapes and sizes get teased, but girls who are, have a higher weight are most likely to be teased, and boys who are at a um, a lower weight are yeah. most likely to be teased. You know, and this teasing isn't isn't always done um, intentionally to hurt someone. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's done just as a joke, and it's it's not funny. It really hurts. It hurts children, and they may not say it. They they may laugh. So you may think they think it's funny, but we really need to know that it's not. And just like we wouldn't make comments about people's race, about their sex. Um, about their sexual identity, we we do not want to make comments about their weight, their physical appearance, their height that that we think is funny that that really may be hurtful. Mm. It really there's, and this is coming. This could be coming from your mom or your dad, and that doesn't go away. Yeah, or your siblings. Right, right. Or your aunt or your grandmother. It could be but anyone. You know, Mostly everyone can remember something that someone said to them that was hurtful. If you take a moment and think about it and, you know, think it probably, well, it may have been intended that way, but it may not have been. And, you know, but we remember those things. They, yeah. they, they live in our bones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, um, you, you mentioned it in your study that the home should be a sanctuary from yeah. this type of pressure. Yeah. They already yeah. feel it outside. Yeah, yeah. Powerful. You know, I, I think in general, um, like I said before, I raised four children, and I was always trying to get my children to do more and study more and be more active. And at some point I thought, you know, everyone's working so hard at school, outside of the home. At, at, in the home, let's just let it be a peaceful place. And it didn't, it, it didn't lead to less productivity. It led to just a more peaceful environment mm. and I think gave, gave everyone strength. What's the fourth cornerstone? The fourth one is to provide a supportive environment with lots of talking and even more listening. And um, this, this is across the board for, for our children, in particular our children when they're during their adolescent stage. Um, what I'm talking about in particular here is when a child comes to you because they've been mistreated because of their weight, because someone has said something, because they've been excluded from a sport, because they're, they're too short or they're too fat or whatever it may be, that is not the time to offer weight loss advice. <laughs> um, that is a time to just listen, to hear them out, to let your child know that you love them no matter what, and you are there to support them. How do you, um, how do you influence 
other family members. I'm thinking of adult to adult. If if there's an aunt that always makes a comment, how how can I go about influencing them to maybe even just read your research? Yeah, so I actually write about that in my book because often that does happen. There's a grandmother, there's a right. aunt. Well, one is to to give them something to read. You know, that yeah. would be relevant. Um, I find that there are a number of ways to do it. One is you can confront that person on their own. So if it's someone with whom your child has a lot of contact, you know, you can say to them, like let's say it was my mother or my sister, I could say, you know what, when you're at our house, I really need you to avoid bringing up topics related to weight. Okay, so you address it ahead of time without your child being there. Mm -hmm. Um, That can take a lot of courage. Yeah. Another way would be when the comment is made, you're ready on the spot. So in front of your child, you know, let's say someone makes a comment, you just say, we don't talk about that in our house, or we're, we're avoiding talking about weight. We've changed our ways. So you confront that person um, on the spot in front of your child in a calm but firm way. And that way your child witnesses how that can be done. Yeah. The third strategy if you think neither of those are going to happen, is to talk to your child about it and just say, you know what, we know that so-and-so engages in this kind of conversation. She's not going to change. You know, we'll see. If we want, we can speak up about it. Otherwise, we're just going to ignore it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so those are kind of the three, and I, I guess my preference would be the first one, then the second, and then the third. Was uh, And I guess that was part of the Huffington Post discussion is, some people are saying, well, yeah, now – so you're really not even addressing it. But part of what this is about is you are addressing weight Absolutely. with your child, but you're doing it really by modeling, not by talking as much as you can. The thing is is that people need to know that their activities, their actions, which are meant to be helpful – such as talking about dieting, talking about their own weight concerns, encouraging a child to diet, those activities are going to be counterproductive. They're going to increase that child's risk either for weight gain over time or in some cases for the onset of a very serious eating disorder. So we want to avoid those actions. And that's what people need to hear. Not that we're just letting it go, that we're ignoring it, but we're addressing it in a different a smarter, a potentially more harmful, and a for sure less, a potentially more helpful and a for sure less harmful way. And that's by modeling the behaviors that we want them to see, exhibiting, talking positively about our own bodies, and taking the focus off of the weight, placing it on healthful behaviors, and on overall identity. I mean, particularly with our children and our adolescent children, they're developing their identity. We want it to be a positive one. We want them to be strong and smart and engage in right actions in the world. Yeah. What, what is the what, – what, what do we determine is the age of adolescence? <laughs> because I know there's been discussion about yeah. that kind of – they're aging. They're turning into older adolescents. Yeah. But it's into the 20s, isn't it? It's, it's officially up to age 25. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole new um, literature now on emerging young adults. So that goes probably from, I mean, everything's a little blurry around the edges, but from, you know, up to the mid-30s. So, you mm. know, so we're, we're just, um, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Because 
we don't intend to harm, we don't intend to hurt, and yet one comment can easily be remembered forever. Absolutely. And become the justification for their pain. I mean, it's what they hang their pain on. And yeah. yeah. Is, is If our child brings up diet and eating issues to us, I guess the the best game or play we can make is just listen openly and reaffirm their worth. I would listen openly, like I said. I would try to figure out what's going on with them. Why? What, you know, what is really the underlying um, the underlying symptom? I guess mm. you know, is it, um, it 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 may or may not be about the weight. Right. Okay. So that's what I would, you know, I would, I would try to explore what's going on. Has anything happened? Has someone said something to you? You know what I mean? To try to yeah. get at that. And then, um, and then really direct it away from that. I mean, let your child know that there is strong research showing that going on a diet predicts weight gain over time. And what would be a much better strategy is just to kind of pay attention. What does my body feel like it needs? Am I hungry? Am I full? How can I eat more fruits and vegetables? If I'm having dessert, you know, how do I have a reasonable amount? So these are behaviors that we can then continue through our whole life. And there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. Sometimes we're going to eat when we're not hungry. Um, But the usual the usual thing that we want to to um, to do is to eat when we're hungry and stop eating when we're full, mm-hmm. right? So that's the kind of thing that we're going toward, and um, and and then we need tools for for when we are upset, for when we have been the victim of bullying, for when something difficult has happened to us. You know, then then we see that food can be used as a coping mechanism just like alcohol or drugs. And we need to help our children develop tools that they can use instead of those behaviors. Yeah, educating them on how to handle it, not just fixing supposedly the the seemingly obvious problem, but maybe some of the bigger, deeper issues down yeah. deep. Yeah, and and then the other thing is we need to be working as a society so there are things that parents can do. There are things that children can do. But what can we do in our society to make sure that we aren't having weight-related bullying in schools, that our children are not constantly exposed to very thin um, models with unrealistic body sizes, that they are not exposed to to negative weight-related comments from our um from our celebrities, from our politicians, whatever it may be. So what can we do at the societal level to make, um, to make our society less, uh, more accepting? Hmm. And at the same time, what can we do at our societal level to, to um, encourage healthy eating and physical activity? You know, so, so we've seen, for example, soda taxes, which may decrease soda. We see changing norms around drinking soda pop. Um, what type of food is most readily available, you know, in our, in our neighborhoods and is cheaper for people to eat? So, so we need to work at the family level, but also at a societal level. Love it. Love it. Great insight. Dr. Diane Newmark-Steiner, thank you again so much for your, your time with this. Everybody, go check out the book, I'm Like So Fat, helping your teen make healthy choices about eating and exercise in a weight-obsessed world, research-based, and uh, if you notice, just 
right to the heart, I think, of the real issue. Powerful influence we have on our children. Stick with us. We'll take a break. Come back. Do a little Coach's Corner when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as I was talking with Dr. Newmark Steiner, I... um, I notice that there's just so many little things we may say, jokes we may make, without really understanding the impact that it has on a teen, a child, an adolescent, a young adult. So, again, I, I mentioned earlier in the show that I've spent this weekend, uh, we lost, we had an accident in my my town, my small city, Um where two teenage kids were killed, uh, five were in a car, and two of them were killed. One was um, a, a, a twin girl, teenage, 16, and um, another 16-year-old boy happened to be friends with my son as well. And then last night I had the chance to, to meet with 50 to 60 youth um, and talk about you know how, what their feelings were about this situation. I, we, our kids are fragile. Our kids are so valuable and important to us. They're so amazing and loved and we care about them and we're only trying to help, right? But we make comments about their weight that then impact them over time. As I, as I just noticed how much these uh, children mean to us, I worry that as parents, we we just need more skills. We need more tools. We need the research that we're finding out about um, uh, about diets and the impact of talking about weight with your kids. It's not about um, being a perfect type of parent, but we can learn. We don't need to have two or three more generations of children growing up um, with eating disorders because of simple little statements we've made and and comments that we've thrown out there. So families are fragile. That's what I've learned this weekend. Children are a gift, right, from heaven. And yet they're in our care. And a lot of times as parents, we don't spend enough time just trying to make sure we're parenting in a skilled way. Go get a book. Go start spending a little of your time learning more. Listen to podcasts. Listen to blog. Go read blogs. Go listen and watch vlogs. There's so many resources out there to being a parent and even a, a healthier, more engaged parent. Don't always just assume because it you you know you lived through it as a teenager that everyone can feel the same way about it. It's it's something we probably need to take a lot more seriously. We we spend more time probably figuring out what workout, you know, program to watch than we do and what how many calories to bring into our body than we do actually spend in our parenting. And I've just noticed with this tragedy in my neighborhood, the parents are amazing and the parents that love their kids so fully and were amazing, incredible, loving parents still sadly lost their children. It's just that random accident. Um, 
but it should be a, a maybe a call for all of us to pick up our games in our own families, pick up our moment of connecting to our kids as much as we can, um, not taking them for granted, relaxing a little bit about the grades maybe, and connect more to who they are. Uh, do a lot more listening as we learned and maybe a whole lot less talking. Just very valuable lessons. And uh, these parents were doing that. They were incredible. And it doesn't always mean you're not going to suffer tragedy and loss. So my prayers go out to those families, but also hopefully a challenge for all of us to, to not make weight be your child's identity. Get rid of the fact and realize the research is very clear. When you tease people, it predicts disordered eating, more likely to be dis, have disordered ease eating. When they're displeased with their body, they're more likely to have eating problems. And when they are pushed to go on a diet and to lose weight, the, the actual reality is they're much more inclined to gain weight. Um, that's the research from the, the great experts at the University of Minnesota. Let's love our kids, folks. And just be grateful they're here. Hug them. Hug them. Hug them if you've got them. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you feel and see and be the good in the world.